Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield-account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbuck CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Markets struggle to price political risk of an election, a sick president, and stimulus that never seems to come. Welcome to Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. It all began in 1996 with a back rub. That was the name of the original algorithm that Google founders Larry Page and Sergey Brin developed first as PhD students at Stanford University. Page had a vision to rank links resulting from an internet search by how often they were linked by other pages. In a 1998 paper, Page and Brin made a case against ad-supported search engines, saying in general, it could be argued from the consumer point of view that the better the search engine is, the fewer advertisements will be needed for the consumer to find what they want. Google went public in 2004 with a valuation of $27 billion and a prospectus that included the company's declared code of conduct, don't be evil. By that time, Eric Schmidt had been brought in as CEO, but Larry Page and Sergey Brin still charted the company's course as a tech giant. In 2005 and 2006, the pair expanded Google's reach by acquiring Android and YouTube. Larry Page officially took over as CEO once again in 2011, but stepped aside just a few years ago in 2015 when the company restructured itself as Alphabet. Alphabet is now an internet search giant, serving as the parent company of many businesses touching on many parts of consumers' daily lives. In a report targeting Alphabet, Apple, Amazon, and Facebook, a House panel seeks sweeping reforms to curb the tech giant's power. Carly Fiorina, former CEO of Hewlett-Packard, says that the regulatory scrutiny is the new normal for Silicon Valley. I think if you look at where innovation traditionally has come from, It has come from the smaller startups. 
after all, that's what Google once was. That's what Amazon once was. That's what Apple once was. That's what all these companies, Facebook, once were. And it's also true that these huge technology companies now have a great interest in leveraging others' innovation, but they do so by buying them up. That's what they have done. And finally, I would say it is undoubtedly true that these companies have a market power and a power over consumers, not to mention consumer information, that's really almost unprecedented. And so I think they can, technology companies can no longer make a credible argument that somehow they are in a different category, that if you do anything to internet based companies in terms of regulation or oversight, that somehow you are going to uh, curtail their growth. I just don't think that argument rings true anymore. And that's why I think strategically they need to think about how to be a part of this conversation instead of just saying, no, no, there's nothing to see here, there's nothing to do here. That's not going to fly. Carly, you mentioned earlier the leadership of some of these companies. Let's talk about leadership right now. How do you lead a company that arguably is winning by too much? You had a phenomenon with IBM, you could say that happened with, you could say it happened with Microsoft. What can a leader do in that situation? Well, first I think, uh, I don't want to be too critical uh, here, but I do think that some of the leaders of some of these companies have um, damaged their case a bit by being, we now know, less than forthcoming about what was really going on. And so we've seen, I think, too many instances where leaders have come before Capitol Hill, and let's face it, that's not a pleasant experience <laughs> for any CEO, and CEOs get very outraged about the hypocrisy, all of which is deserved. Nevertheless, when a CEO is found to be less than forthcoming, that's not helpful to their cause. So I think the most important thing for these tech CEOs to do is to decide strategically that the best course is not resistance at all costs, but instead to try and be part of the solution here. You know, I started my career out in telecommunications, and there was a long period of time where AT&T, as the big power, resisted at all costs being part of the solution. That resistance cost them in the end. And so I think these CEOs need to think through what are they willing to live with? How can they influence the legislative process here on both sides of the aisle to come up with something that's going to work, but just leave us alone isn't politically feasible anymore? And I think the economic arguments for just leave it alone honestly, are no longer completely credible. Just briefly here, the conclusion, Carly, is it a, a plausible defense to say we've got to worry about China? <laughs> well, yes and no. I mean, yes, of course, we do need to worry about China. And that is why our approach to China must be consistent and persistent and strategic. And that requires collaboration between government and business, which hasn't always been in evidence <laughs> over the last 20 years. Uh, it also means that we need to be consistent across administrations when we deal with China and between parties, which we haven't always been. However, these tech companies are winning globally. It's why the European Union has taken some of them on. And so 
that argument is important, but I don't think it will be successful in saying, just leave us alone. That was Carly Fiorina, founder and chair of Carly Fiorina Enterprises. Coming up, the tech company that's constantly evolving. IBM is taking another step forward, becoming a major cloud services provider. CEO Arvid Krishna says this is just the beginning. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. In its 109-year history, IBM has reinvented itself to stay at the top of its game. This week, the company did it again with its announcement that it would be spinning off its infrastructure services unit to focus more on cloud computing and artificial intelligence. Arvind Krishna, who took over as CEO in April, has said he will pursue growth relentlessly, and his services business has been struggling during the pandemic. I asked him how this shift fits in with his vision for IBM's future. When I first became CEO, I talked about our commitment to growth. And I talked about a maniacal focus on hybrid cloud and AI. As we look at that market, that's a trillion dollar addressable opportunity. And as we look at our client buying behaviors, they are changing. How they do application modernization and how they buy infrastructure modernization is separating. So that says it behooves us to unlock growth by creating two companies. One company focused on hybrid cloud and AI, and the other company focused on managed infrastructure services. So in the first company, the platform, the open hybrid cloud platform that's based on Red Hat technology, all of the software that gives clients the capability to leverage that platform. Then going from there into all the services they can use to do their journey to cloud. You put all that together, that's going to be IBM, together with the infrastructure that they run their most mission-critical services on, and that company, we believe, will deliver mid-single-digit growth in a sustainable way in the medium term. The other company, we're calling it Nuco because we don't have a name for it yet, is the managed infrastructure company. On day one, twice the size of its nearest competitor, over 4,000 clients in 115 countries and counting, really enables it with an investment-grade balance sheet to go out and take share and be on an improved growth trajectory. So, David, really exciting to be able to do this and yet again reinvent our company for the future.
So, Arvin, you talk about growth, and you have consistently said that is the question of growth for IBM. Compare those two companies. You said mid-single digits for the one. Are you expecting much higher for the hybrid cloud and AI company to do? My aspiration and my goals for the company will always be higher. We're going to invest to be able to unlock even more growth. But I think it's prudent, given where we've been for the last few years, to be able to put a target out there. So I say in the medium term, so think... Um, uh, in the in the medium term, not the short term, because we've got to execute the spin and uh, then do all the work ready to be able to generate that. And so I, I would say that that's a milestone. Maybe go for higher. That's certainly possible. But I think it's prudent to be able to commit things that we have high confidence in. Uh, IBM shares immediately uh, took a step up on the announcement of this news. Uh, how much of this is a question of valuation? How differently are cloud companies valued by the marketplace right now as opposed to uh, information services companies? So if I look at it, um, pre this announcement, we were a majority services company. Post this announcement, um, IBM will become over half as a software and solutions company and um, even a larger number in terms of overall product. And if I look at the annuity base of the new company, it's about a uh, little over 50%. So if I look at that, that's a very attractive company that promises a different valuation uh, than the current structure. So that is a piece of it, but I think it's actually more the growth and the addressable market opportunity of a trillion dollars that I think is driving it. But David, you're closer to that audience than probably I am in terms of how they think and how they react. So, so Arvind, what will be the relationship between these two companies? Uh, will they be contracting with one another? Will they be free to contract with other people that might be even a competitor of their sister company? Uh, both. So, absolutely. You unlock growth for both companies by being allowed to partner with those that may be competitors. Certainly for Nuco, they may today not so much be restricted, but others who are competitors of the aggregate may feel reluctant to partner deeply with them. That gets unlocked. No, no constraints, no restrictions on that side. Now that said, I think it's likely that we're each other's biggest customers on day one, day one post-spin. Uh, they certainly purchase a lot of hardware and software uh, from IBM. IBM certainly purchases the services from Nuco in terms of how we run IT infrastructure and so on. So the two companies are going to have a deep strategic relationship, but that is not going to constrain them both from partnering with whoever they want to. Arvind, what can you tell us about the leadership of the two companies going forward? Who do you expect to be the leaders of the two? I assume you're one of them. And what about Jim Whitehurst from Red Hat? What role will he have going forward? So, so both Jim and myself remain with IBM. And a lot of the leadership who runs the businesses at IBM is going to stay at IBM. The leadership who runs managed infrastructure services goes with Nuco. Now, as you know, in these spins, uh, the, the board, the governance structure of IBM stays in place because the company is staying in place. In the new core, we have to create a new board. Once that new board is formed, they'll be able to select a top management team. We certainly expect that they will select many people from the current uh, uh, management team. But as that goes uh, forward, the new board of the company will select the overall leadership. But in terms of the day-to-day -day operations, a lot of the people are in place. They run infrastructure services today, and they will continue to do that. Uh, Arvind, uh, you clearly want to gain some growth by freeing up the hybrid services and, and the AI part of the company. Do you also run the risk of losing some, of essentially cross-selling, have customers you can cross-sell both sides of your business? I think that that's a risk that can be managed, uh, David. So the word I would use is, I don't have any concerns about it, 
and then I'll sort of say, of course, I'm going to be paranoid about it, and I'm going to have lots of work around it, and so I'm going to mitigate any of that risk in terms of how we work. Um, There are certainly common clients across both sides of the business, but the clients tend to contract uh, separately for the different parts of the business already. So we have to go manage that risk. But as I said also, the two businesses will have deep and strategic relationships with each other, and that will also help mitigate uh, that part of the risk. So I think we'll unlock growth, and I think that the risk on the aspect you mentioned can be mitigated. Uh, This is obviously a very big uh, uh, initiative of IBM. It'll take a while, I'm sure, to put it all together to digest it. When do you expect the spinoff to be effectuated? We believe based on history and looking at others who have done similar spinoffs, they seem to take about a year to get done. So I'll say a year plus minus a few months. So that takes us into the latter part of 2021. We have to get through all of the structure of the new company. We have to file uh, to the SEC, the S10s. We expect that will happen somewhere early to mid part of next year. You get to get through all of those approvals. You got to get to a final board approval, and that then allows us to uh, to impact all this. But I think uh, 12 months plus minus some number of months is probably the, a good timeline to expect. That was Arvind Krishna, CEO of IBM. Coming up, energy policy is one of the major issues that separates President Trump and former Vice President Biden. Dan Jurgen, vice chairman of IHS Markets, says the future of energy might be out of either of their hands. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. President Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden have very different ideas about energy policy in the United States. President Trump wants to solidify America's position as a top oil and gas producer, and Democratic nominee Biden is setting his sights on reducing the company's reliance on fossil fuels with a $2 trillion climate plan. Dan Jurgen, chairman of IHS Market and author of the new book, The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations, says that there is an inevitable energy shift underway. The Trump administration has been focused on this new position the United States has as the world's number one producer of oil and gas and what that does for the economy and what it does for the position in the world. Joe Biden has a $2 trillion climate action plan, uh, which is very focused on uh, addressing climate things. And I think in terms of uh, oil and gas, it's a little unclear where where he is. He made a point to say when he was in Pennsylvania, where there are a lot of jobs related to uh, fracking, as it's called, that uh, he's I'm not going to ban fracking. But clearly, uh, it's it's a pivot towards climate, and I think certainly more regulation around oil and gas. From what you know of the technology and the development and the markets, because the market drives it as well with the prices, uh, is this sooner or later that we're going to have a fundamental shift away from fossil fuels? I think it's an evolution that's going on. I think you mentioned uh, electric power, and I was recently with a bunch of the leaders of the electric power industry. They do look to be net zero carbon by 2035 or 2040. Many of them are moving that direction. Other parts of it, I think it, it, it evolves over time. There are 280 million cars in the United States and about 279 million of run on gasoline, and I don't think people are gonna throw away their cars. So I think it's this is a longer evolution. And I think there's what happens in the U.S., but the U.S., remember, is only 15% of CO2 emissions. China's twice that. Uh, India, other emerging markets are looking towards commercial energy to get away from burning wood and waste in people's houses with the health consequences. So I think this is something that unfolds time. Directionally where it's going, that's clear. 
directionally, the timing really matters, and the bets can be rather substantial. In your book, you point out how many jobs in the United States, like there's 10 million are tied to the energy industry. We also have trillions of dollars globally. Who's putting bets on which side of this? And we saw a report that Exxon, basically internal documents leaked, suggest that Exxon is not moving as quickly as maybe some others away from fossil fuel emissions. China certainly might benefit, you point out in your book. Russia, maybe not. Who's betting on which side well, of this? Well, let me say, I think the Exxon thing, of course, that's a still unfolding story. But I think what's happening is all major companies now are looking at their at their at their emissions and saying, what are they going to be? And then the question becomes, how do you mitigate them? And in the in the new map, you know, there's this whole chapter called Breakthrough Technologies based upon the work that Ernie Moniz, a former energy secretary, and I did for led for Bill Gates Foundation and Breakthrough Energy Coalition about the technologies we need. And one of them that's really very major is what's called carbon capture, carbon mitigation simply when you look at the numbers. And I think that's where, you know, we're going to see uh, increased uh, uh, investment going in terms of research on that to, to meet it. In terms of countries, China's a significant winner here because it, imp unlike the U.S., it imports 75 percent of its oil. And it regards that as a major strategic problem, particularly in the geopolitical issues that are now developing. And it has a dominant position in many of what we might call, what they call the new energies. For instance, about 70% of the solar panels of the world are made in China, another 10% by Chinese companies. And it's Chinese manufacturing that's partly responsible for this revolution in solar costs, which have come way down. So, you know, they would be a big beneficiary of this. One of the things that I, I was surprised I learned from your book is the Department of Energy under President Trump is investing an awful lot of money in research, science and research, some of which actually has to go to renewables. Right. Uh, six and a half billion dollars in um, in basic science research. And, and that's the foundation, really the true foundation of an energy transition. And that's been pretty consistent. That has been one area of bipartisan cooperation in, in seeing the importance of maintaining that commitment. And this is where the U.S. strength really comes from, which is we have this incredible ecosystem that goes from 17 national labs that kind of expenditure, universities, companies, startups, no other country has that advantage in new technologies. Take wind and solar. They're, those are 50-year-old industries, but it's only in the last 10 years that they've really become so competitive. So it takes time. And so the investment you make now really pays off, but it can take 10 or 20 years from now. Dan, draw one other contrast that, again, I got from your book, The New Map, uh, and that is between Russia, which is very dependent on fossil fuels, goodness knows, and Saudi Arabia, which is also very dependent, but they have that Vision 2030 campaign going on. Does Russia have anything similar to that about what comes after fossil fuels? No, I don't think so. I mean, the other day, Vladimir Putin said it's great. Our uh, our budget is only now 30 percent oil instead of being 40 percent oil, the money coming from it. But I think Russia has been talking about diversification for uh, uh, for 20 years since Putin came to power. And it's really not happening. In fact, I was at a conference where I asked Putin that question. He and Chancellor Merkel were on the platform. Uh, about diversification, but we got sidetracked because I mentioned shale, and he really doesn't like U.S. shale, so he, he gave me his, uh, his, his opinions on that, which were pretty strong. That was Dan Jurgen, chairman of IHS Market. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account 
While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. As we do every week, we welcome now our special contributor, Larry Summers, former Treasury Secretary, to help us make sense out of this week. And I have to say, let me start, Larry, with the drama, maybe soap opera, of the, of the stimulus bill. On again, off again, sometimes in the same day, we had President Trump saying, I'm walking away from the table, I don't want to talk about it. We had Nancy Pelosi tell us here at Bloomberg, I'm not doing it unless it's a big deal. And then at the very end of the week, President Trump came back and said, no, I want to do more stimulus than anybody. I want to do more than Nancy Pelosi. But in the end, do we need it? David, we do need it. It's very clear that it's the right thing to do. Look, doing without stimulus at a moment like this is kind of like wading into a crowd not wearing a mask in the era of COVID. It might turn out just to have been a mistake for which you didn't pay a price, but very likely it will be a mistake for which you will pay a very big price. There are all kinds of signs that the fast bounce bounce back that the economy was enjoying isn't going to continue of its own devices. COVID's getting further out of control as we move to uh, winter. Financial strains are increasing and interfering with the flow of credit. Layoffs, which people hope to avoid, they're bowing to necessity and uh, laying people off. The situation globally is complex at best. Stimulus is recovery insurance, and nothing is more important than maximizing the prospect that the recovery continues. So, Larry, given that, the markets were up. The S&P was up the most since July this past week, and it's had two weeks up in a row. Are the markets basically saying we're going to get the stimulus sooner or later, no matter what, because we think maybe Joe Biden's going to end up being president? If you look at the internals of the market, there are signs in uh, that uh, direction. The companies, uh, for example, those involved in green technology, they're thought most likely to benefit from the kind of recovery program he would propose, are up disproportionately relative to other companies, such as those in very brown industries, where there's the sense that the company depends more on uh, the Trump administration. So I think the expectation of Biden's stimulus is an important part of it. The expectation that if the economy starts to melt down, the Fed will have to go into more rescue. And the Fed's rescue tricks are basically about credit. And that 
benefits stocks much more than it benefits workers. And so some of it's a, a bet that we're going to have to uh, rely on that. But anyone who said the stock market's up, therefore everything's okay, is a fool. And you saw that this week when it, when there were moments when it looked like we weren't going to get stimulus now and we weren't going to get stimulus soon. Um, those were the moments when uh, the market was weakest. Yeah, and, Larry, I have to give you credit here. On this program earlier some time ago, you said the chances were larger. There would be a blue wave that is to say the Senate would go Democrat as well as the president. Those were a larger set of odds than actually the possibility of Donald Trump getting reelected. But let's go to the other big risk out there, which is COVID-19, which we see rising once again in the United States. You say we need stimulus for the economy. What do we need to battle COVID-19? We need to do the things that the rest of the world has figured out uh, to do. You know, it's amazing. I had occasion to see the statistics on Pakistan. Pakistan's not a country that's known for its competence and aptitude in getting things done uh, effectively, but they are doing much better than uh, we are in terms of containing uh, COVID. Some of this is a broad cultural thing that in America we focus more on private health and we'd be well advised to focus much more on public health in all of its various dimensions like preventive uh, medicine, like investing in socioeconomically depressed uh, populations. That's a part of it. But the other part of it is raw, unadulterated incompetence in rolling out tests, in encouraging people to do dangerous things, in leaders role modeling uh, cataclysmically bad uh, habits. I mean, let's be clear. In the same way that everyone knows that you tell your kid not to drive when they're inebriated, you don't go looking for COVID by wading into crowds at potential super spreading events with no masks. And we are reaping what uh, the president of the United States has sown uh, here. And it is inexcusable. It is inexcusable. And there's more people that, you know, there are more people than died in the Vietnam War and every war since who would not have died if we had managed to function at an average level of competence, not a, not a high level of competence, an average level of incompetence for industrialized countries. So, Larry, we always want to conclude with a lightning round here of a few things. Let's figure out who got, uh, who, who got too much this week. We're pointing towards the airlines uh, getting uh, too much. Uh, we do need to keep the planes flying, but there's no reason why we need to keep the stock prices of the airlines up. And there's no reason why people who bet on airline bonds uh, and airline credit earning a 7% spread because it might be uh, risky, they, they should take the consequences and not get paid back in full as part of any bailout. And there's a bipartisan error being made on that. Okay, so if the airlines are getting too much, who's in risk of getting too little right now? Who's getting shortchanged in the economy? Women. Uh, this, everything about the COVID recession 
is particularly burdensome uh, for uh, women. You've seen the female unemployment rate go above the male unemployment rate for the first time in a very long time. Uh, you see it in what people with careers are experiencing because it's women who are disproportionately bearing the burden of kids who are uh, still uh, at home. And that's a very costly thing uh, for our country's future. The successful assimilation of women into uh, the labor force over the last decades has been an important thing that has driven our economy forwards. And if that stops, that's going to matter long after we've somehow put COVID behind us. Larry, we're seeing a lot of contests, certainly in the United States of America and around the world. We have a presidential contest going on. We saw that vice presidential debate earlier this week. So in all these contests, who's winning at this point? Authoritarians, perhaps Xi Jinping. Look, uh, American democracy, democracy in the UK, um, democracy in Brazil, democracy just isn't looking like it can keep people secure. The central challenge going forward is making sure that government by the people also actually is government for uh, the people. And when you see things like our incompetence in dealing with uh, COVID, when you see the magnitude of the way leaders in the United States, and not only in the United States, are pitting one group in the population against another uh, group uh, in uh, the population, when you see the magnitude of the differentials that are arising between rich and poor, 10 years of life expectancy, the equivalent of three times the total burden of cancer, when you see all of that, it's got to be something that makes our adversaries who believe in authoritarian systems feel like their example is managing to win out over ours. And going back to John Quincy Adams, to George Kennan's strategy for winning the Cold War, to the most thoughtful diagnoses of why the Berlin Wall came down, it has come down much less to the power of our arms than the power of our example. And our example is in more tawdry disarray than certainly any time in my lifetime. Well, that's pretty sobering, but, but very valuable at the same time. Larry Summers, you can see why we turned to Larry at the end of the week, because he really does wrap it all up, goes around the world and explains it all to us and makes some sense of it. We hope, in fact, that things get a little bit better and, in fact, that authoritarians don't end up winning the way Larry Summers, former Treasury Secretary, predicts. So that's going to do it for Wall Street Week for right now, an eventful week in which an awful lot happens, some of it good, some of it not so good, but all of it affecting the markets. And that does it for this edition of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. Adopt. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, 
OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.